Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. I have a theory, personally, that there are some things that everybody or almost everybody, everybody believes but are simply not true, okay? And I'm going to prove, I'm going to prove that this is the case. Did you know that a chameleon does not change its colors to camouflage itself? Did you know that? A chameleon actually changes its colors to communicate. So it communicates its moods, its desires, it communicates with other chameleons by changing its colors. Camouflaging is a very, very fractional part of the reason. The primary purpose is communication. Did you know that Napoleon wasn't short? He wasn't short. Now, by today's standards, yes, he was a little bit short. And I won't say his height, because some of you would be like, think, I, I think you're short. I'm not going to say that. So, but by his uh, standards of his day, Napoleon was not a short man. Did you know, this one blew my mind, did you know that the earth does not revolve around the sun? Right? What the earth revolves around is the center of mass in the solar system, which is a fraction off from the sun. That was kind of a trick, but it actually doesn't revolve around the sun. It revolves around the center of mass. Let me give you one more, because I heard this my whole life. Did you know that George Washington did not have wooden teeth? Anybody ever heard that? You grew up learning that, right? Didn't have wooden teeth, right? Okay. So these are things that generally, for whatever reason, rumor, gossip, or instruction, we were taught, hey, this is true, but when you chip away at it, you dig underneath, you learn, actually, that's not quite true. Now, here's what I know. Your life isn't going to be drastically changed by learning the truth about these things, right? It doesn't really matter. But I also happen to believe that there are some things that people believe about God, about heaven, about morality, about the world around them, and about themselves that everybody thinks are true, but they're not true. And when you get those things wrong, it can have extremely detrimental impact on your life. Today, we're going to look at a man named Nicodemus. It's going to be in John chapter 3. I encourage if you've got a Bible, you can go there with us. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was a person who for most of his life had been certain of a few very clear truths that he came to learn weren't true. And so what we're going to do in looking at the story of Nicodemus is, is uncover three religious myths that almost everybody believes that simply aren't true. John chapter 3 begins this way. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, the first thing you're going to notice about this man, Nicodemus, is the timing of his visit to Jesus. Did you catch that? When does Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night. This tells us something about what is going on in Nicodemus' mind, and this is what it tells us. Nicodemus would like to keep this conversation private. Kind of ironic that 2,000 years later, we're all talking about it, but Nicodemus intended for this to be a private conversation between himself and Jesus. I believe Nicodemus has a little bit of a hesitancy, maybe a little bit of fear, because the group that he belongs to, the Pharisees, are anti-Jesus. If you think there is a debate raging in our country today, there was hostility 
among the warring parties of the first century that Jesus lived among. The Pharisees were not pro-Jesus. They were not team Jesus. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. I love this because here's what it tells me. It doesn't matter where or in what condition you come to Jesus. Just come. Right? Like you don't have to have it all figured out. You might not even have all the motives right and untangled. But come to Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And I love the contrast from the Pharisee we looked at last week. If you weren't here or didn't watch online last week, we looked in Luke chapter 7 about another Pharisee, a guy named Simon. I would just about guarantee that Simon and Nicodemus know each other, but Simon has a very different attitude, a very different posture toward Jesus. Because you see, whereas Simon in last week's message is clinging to his preconceptions and, and, and disregarding Jesus because of them, Nicodemus is just curious enough to go something that I've always believed is not adding up. And so by night, he comes. And I love his statement. He says, Jesus, we know that you're, you're a, a teacher from God because no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Now, there's not a question there. There's just a recognition of, of, of Nicodemus going, you're, you don't make sense to us. Remember, you don't fit in the right category. We're not sure what to do with you. But one thing I know, people can't do the things you do unless God is with them. And he says, we know, we know. Who's the we? Well, it's obvious, right? Who is Nicodemus a member of? He's a member of the Pharisees. What an astonishing confession that Nicodemus would acknowledge that the Pharisees knew Jesus had come from God, the God they had devoted their life to, the God they had memorized the word of, the God that they stood as the guardians for. They knew Jesus had come from this God, and yet they crucified him. Let that sink in for just a second. It is not about what you know. It is about what you do with what you know. Nicodemus, having been on the inside, says, Hey, Jesus... It's not just me. We, we all know. No, nobody does me. Nobody raises the dead. Nobody walks on water. Nobody calms storms unless the God of all power is with him. We know this, Jesus, and he's just honest enough to admit it. What's interesting is that on two occasions in this passage, Jesus is going to refer to Nicodemus with the plural you. Now, in our language, you is you, and it's you, and it's, you know, it's all, but in Greek, it's different. There's a singular you, there's a plural you, and two times in this passage, Jesus will say to, to, to Nicodemus, you, and he's saying, in other words, you Pharisees, so I want you to catch what's going on. There's a main plot, and there's a subplot. The main plot, I believe, is a man who's just curious enough to find out who Jesus is. That's primarily what's going on, but there's a subplot. The subplot is that the Pharisees are still grappling with who Jesus is, and Jesus is going to point out to them, by way of Nicodemus, that they have some myths going on in their theology. Go again to John chapter 3 at verse 3. Jesus answered him, This truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, you know that Jesus had a propensity for, for making surprising statements, right? To put it mildly. <laughs> Do you remember the one time in John chapter 6 where he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me? And people were like, what? <laughs> right? And most of them leave. And Jesus is like, disciples, are you going to leave? And Peter's like, my paraphrase, we'd sure like to, but we got nowhere else to go. We're stuck. Like, we're in too deep now, right? Surprising statements. Statements like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Statements like in Matthew 18, 3, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had a propensity for surprising statements, but there's probably not a more surprising statement in all of Jesus' words than verse 3 of this passage. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus rightly goes, huh? In fact, both times that Nicodemus responds to Jesus, you'll see it in the passage, he, he starts with the, the word how. How? How is this happening? You know? And I love this because Nicodemus doesn't have it all figured out, but he's honest enough to ask He's honest enough to put himself as the student to the teacher and say, Jesus, explain this. I want to know. I want to understand. See, Nicodemus has a right understanding of physical reality. He gets it. He's going, I don't, I don't think there's, I mean, scientifically, I just don't get it. How can a grown man get back inside his mother's womb? This doesn't add up. He understands physical, material reality, but he has a wrong understanding of spiritual reality. And here it is. The first myth that Nicodemus has held to. Heaven is for good people. Myth number one, heaven is for good people. There's a show on, uh, I'm sure it's on multiple platforms. I think it's on Netflix, and I haven't watched it. I got to watch the first episode this week just as kind of a research for, for my message. Um, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't know if it's a good show and I'm not re recommending it, but you may watch it. It's called The Good Place, okay? Somebody watches it. It's called The Good Place, and I watched the first episode, and it was just fascinating to me to see how Hollywood portrays the afterlife. The basic premise is this woman who, who dies and goes to this kind of pseudo-heaven, and spoiler alert, she's not supposed to be there, but she's the only one that knows it. They've, they've gotten the wrong identity, so she's trying to stay in heaven and not... But there's a scene where Michael, the architect, if you know scripture, it's you know, Michael, but he's explaining that there's this whole algorithm... There's this whole algorithm, and they add up all the good and all the bad, and, and depending on the numbers, the only the very, very best people get into heaven, and you've got to have a really good score. And, and friends, this is, this is basically a modern rendition of a very old belief, where you get a scale out, and you place the good works, and you place the bad works, and you hope that at the end of the day, the good outweighs the bad, because God's a pretty generous guy, and if you just did more good than bad, he's going to let you in. Side note, don't get your theology from sitcoms. <laughs> that should go without saying, but I fear that in our day and age, far less people, maybe even Christians, are getting their theology from here as much as from music, be it Christian music even, Christian music, movies, shows. So don't get your theology there. Get your the theology from the Bible. Get your theology from Jesus. But most people in Jesus' day and in ours believe that the path to heaven is paved with good works. Here's the fundamental flaw to that thinking. And Jesus hits it right on the head in verse 6. In the NIV, it goes this way. Flesh gives birth to flesh, 
the spirit gives birth to spirit. Oh, Jesus, what are you saying? You know, there was this uh, gorilla years ago. I forget the gorilla's name. Some of you might remember. But they taught the gorilla to do sign language. You remember this? What is it? That. That. Okay. Yeah, that, that gorilla. Well, anyway, uh, that gorilla, thank you, Bethany, by the way, I didn't, but the gorilla learned how to do sign language. It was absolutely fascinating. But here's the thing. A gorilla that knows how to do sign language is still a gorilla, right? And, and there's people that, that get like fascinated with like things like cats. You might have seen this, and they like put contact lenses in their eyes to make them look like cats, and they grow out their nails, and they, they even like wear cat-like material, and they get like tattoos. And, but, but guess what? A person who tries to make themselves look like a cat is still a person. And a sinner who advocates for good causes and, and donates to charity and attends church and helps old ladies cross the street is still a sinner. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You can't change your DNA. And the Bible is very clear that though we were created as good in the image of God, we fell into sin. Each of us turned and went our own way, and our DNA code was disrupted with something called sin, and we can't improve our way out of it. There has to be a rebirth. You must be born again. This is what I realized at nine years old sitting around a bonfire at Camp Sparta, that I was not good, but I was deeply loved by God, and that through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for me, that I would be forgiven of my sins, and I would be given a brand new life. I would be born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Let me illustrate it for you another way. Maybe this will hit some of our young people in the room and, and online. Because some of you are gamers. I've never been a gamer, I'll, I'll be honest, except for one game. NCAA football 2003. I almost failed out of college because of that game, and I am not exaggerating. What I would do, and this isn't in my notes and probably doesn't need to be said, but what I would do is I would wait to do like a big paper till the night before, you know, it was due. And then I would go, I'm just going to stay up all night and knock this paper out. But first, I'm just going to play one game of this college. And friends, I would, I would play dynasty mode and I would blow through like four seasons in one night and, and my paper wouldn't get done and I'd turn it in late. But that, that video game, man, I was all in. Some of you are gamers and you know that in video games, at least in the old ones, there would always be this moment when you're playing the game. It could be a sports game. It could be a, a, a first-person whatever kind of game, but it could be Mario, you know. But there would always come a point where you're like, I don't know if I've got enough lives or enough power or points to, to, to win. But man, I've been playing for a while. And, and then you start having this thing of, do I just reset, right, and kind of start over? Or do I just power through it? A lot of people in our world going, man, it's not going well, but I think I can, I think I got enough to get to the, I think I can make it. I think I can just push through. And what I want to tell you today is you're not going to win. The game of life is stacked against you. You have the wrong code. You're not going to make it. 
What you need is to hit reset and to hand the controller over to someone who knows how to win the game for you. You must be born again. And I want us to wrestle with a very honest question today because it is the most important question you will ever ask yourself. Have I been born again or have I simply been changing my habits and adapting my behavior? My, my, my probably greatest fear in life because I've devoted my life to this, to preaching the gospel, my greatest fear in life is this, that we would create a Christian subculture that looks and sounds and votes a certain way, and when people start to look and sound and vote the same way, we go, Christian, but they've never been born again. It scares me. It scares me there can be people in our church, there could be people watching us week in and week out that don't understand that there's something completely supernatural that has to take place. As crazy as a rebirth, yes, that's what Jesus said. That's what has to happen. So Jesus goes on in verse 8 in this conversation with Nicodemus, John 3 verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you, plural you, you Pharisees, do not receive our testimony. There are two implied questions of Nicodemus. Neither of them are asked explicitly, but both of them are answered by Jesus, first with a metaphor. So two implied questions, two metaphors. The first question that Nicodemus implies is, Jesus, how can a person enter the kingdom of God? And you know what Jesus' answer is. you got to be born again. You understand what that means physically. That same thing has to happen in the spiritual, a total reset. And you're thinking, you're prioritizing, you're acting, you're speaking. That's how a person enters the kingdom of heaven. The second implied question in Nicodemus is, Jesus, how can a person live or how does a person live who has entered the kingdom? So first, how does a person enter the kingdom? And then what does it look like? How does a person live out this kingdom? And Jesus says, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What you would not get from the English text, but what you need to know about the original language, which is Greek, the original New Testament, is that the word in Greek that is translated as wind in our Bible is alternately translated as breath or spirit. So in this passage alone, the same word is sometimes going to be wind and sometimes spirit, but it's the same word. That should clue us into something. What is it about God's spirit that is like breath or like wind? Do you remember in Genesis chapter 2 when, when God takes the dust of the earth and he fashions a man named Adam and he what? He breathes into him the breath of life. He's breathing his spirit into Adam. So the same word is wind, is breath, is spirit. Remember that Jesus is helping Nicodemus understand that it is essential to enter the kingdom of God, that a person have the spirit of God or the breath of God or the wind of God living inside of them. And this leads us to the second myth that Jesus is going to destroy here. The second myth that Jesus destroys is that Christianity is about being good. 
We know that people are shaped primarily by two factors, nature and nurture. Some of you have studied this in psychology. Nature and nurture. And psychologists have debated for centuries which of these two uh, impacts the human experience more. Is it, is it nature, the, 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 the natural biological makeup of our lives, or is it nurture? And they'll run experiments. And what, what if we take somebody who by nature is this way, but we nurture them that way? Does it change? Or, or what if someone's by nature the other way? And, they go, and, and we wrestle with that. And I'm not here to answer the question because I don't know. We know nature and nurture impact, but here's what I do know. Both are natural instincts, and for many of us, our religious nurturing have taught us that Christianity is about being good. And it's simply not true. See, here's the problem, and here's why it's not true. Good isn't good enough. Good isn't good enough. A good person may not throw the first punch, but a good person is not going to be turning the other cheek when someone punches them. A good person may not go out and actively get revenge on somebody who has wronged them, but they're certainly going to nurse that grudge. A good person may not sleep around, but, but who can fault them for that prolonged look or that extra thought? <clears throat> good isn't good enough. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount continually says things like, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, and to paraphrase what Jesus is saying is, you've heard it said, be good. Keep the law. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Do enough to be considered good. But I tell you, something more than good is needed. Good isn't good enough. To, to further illustrate the point, do you remember that when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember Jesus' question? It was a very uh, surprising response. Seems like a good question. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Who is good but God alone? It's like, why are we even talking about good as if good is what can get you into heaven? It's not. As if good is what it means to follow Jesus. It's not. It's something fundamentally different. And if anyone was good enough, Nicodemus was. If anyone was good enough, Nicodemus was. And listen again to what Nicodemus says, because again, this is going to give us a, a huge clue into Nicodemus's thinking. Verse 2, let me read it one more time. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Did you catch that? What Nicodemus doesn't say is, Jesus, we know that you're from God because you're really, really good. That's not what brought him to Jesus. What defined Jesus' life and ministry, what drew Nicodemus to meet him at night, was not Jesus' goodness. It was an unexplainable power that Jesus possessed. And Nicodemus said, i got to figure out what that's about. Because I'm good. <laughs> the Pharisees are good. Simon the Pharisee is good. You're something more than good. You're something deeper and different. Jesus, what is this power. Those of us who have lived in Florida for some time, and that would include probably all of us in the room and most of us online, when we think of wind, we're probably thinking of something different than most of the rest of the country, right? Our friends in Louisiana and Texas and now Alabama, they're starting to learn as well, right? Like, 
most people in the country probably hear that, that those born of the Spirit are like wind, and they think, we're like a gentle breeze that cools people <laughs> off. And that's what, that's what Christianity is, right? We're just a gentle breeze. I do not think that what Jesus is saying at all. I, I think that's almost the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Because those of us that live in Florida and surrounding states, for us, you know what wind is? Wind is unpredictable. It's dynamic. It's forceful. It leaves a path. It can't be controlled or contained. That is wind. And Jesus says, verse 8, that is what it is like to be born of the Spirit. And that's something very different. Friends, the truth is this. History has largely misunderstood and religion has largely misunderstood the kind of person that Jesus was. And therefore, they've misunderstood what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is the Jesus that we've created in history. Somebody show me a chapter and verse where Jesus ever had a lamb with him. Not one. But I can show you a chapter and verse for this. Flipping tables over in the temple. Now, we know that Jesus was incredibly gentle and whimsical and wise and self-controlled. But as I saw in a meme recently, if you've ever asked yourself, what would Jesus do? Keep in mind that flipping tables and chasing people with whips is within the realm of possibility. <laughs> right? We've got this skewed image that Jesus was just this meek and mild guy that walked around with a lamb on his shoulders and therefore to be a good Christian is to wear a red sweater and to tie our shoes right in the morning and no knock on Mr. Rogers. In fact, where's Rob? We were just talking about what a, what a great man Mr. Rogers is, but Jesus was like one part Mr. Rogers, one part William Wallace, okay? Like it, it was not just Jesus was tame. They didn't kill him because he was tame. They killed him because he was wild, they killed him because they couldn't contain him. And followers of Jesus throughout the centuries in most parts of the world have been persecuted, have been killed, not because we sit on our hands and comb our hair the right way, but because we are uncontainable. The Spirit of God lives within us. And I want to specifically address those of you that are raising children because this is so important. Every person I know in the world, Hindu, Muslim, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, are trying to raise good kids. There is nothing Christian about raising good kids. Your job as a parent is not to raise good kids. Your job as a Christian parent is to raise kids in whom the dynamic, unpredictable, all-powerful, disruptive presence of God abides in their hearts by faith in Jesus. That's your job. A couple years back, I got the chance to meet Erwin McManus. Erwin uh, is, uh, 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 he was at the time a young man that gave his life to the Lord at our John Young campus. Some of you might not know that. He now pastors a massive church called Mosaic Church in Southern California. He's a, he's a writer, a speaker, a great influencer. But Erwin, in just kind of a smaller setting, was sharing with some pastors a, a, a story that happened between him and his teenage son. His teenage son came to him and said, Dad, would you ever put me and my sister in harm's way? And Erwin said, yes, I would. And he goes, I thought you'd say that. <laughs> he said, because here's what his kids knew. Their dad hadn't raised them to play it safe. Their dad had raised them to follow the disruptive presence of God into the worst parts of the world 
and bring change and bring the kingdom. And so his daughter spent some time in Syria several years ago on mission, right? And some of us, if we're being honest, would you put, no, 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 I'd never put my kids in harm's way. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to raise your kids to be good and to not follow Jesus. Good isn't good enough. And what I fear is that our churches are full of good people who raise good kids to get good jobs so they can make a good living, so that they can go on to raise good kids who get good jobs, who do you see the cycle and yet miss the move of God in their life? I go back to the passage one more time. John 3, 13 to 17, this is what it says. And Jesus still speaking. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What Jesus does here is something somewhat obscure because he references a, a story in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 20. We're not going to take the time to go there because it's kind of a lengthy story, but the gist of it is that, that the Israelites have, have rebelled against God. They've spoken out against God, and God has sent a plague among them, and, and serpents or snakes are biting them. And Moses goes, God, what do we do? And, and God says, well, here's what you do. Build a bronze serpent, lift it up high, and everybody that looks at the serpent that has the venom in them, when they look to the serpent, they're going to be cured. They're going to be saved. Now, why would Jesus use this weird story from Numbers 21? Two points of interest, and they lead to the third myth that he's destroying. The first thing interesting in the passage is the symbolism of the serpent. Uh, do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are in this perfect garden, and everything is perfect, and they're with a perfect God, and a serpent comes among them, right? And tempts Eve and then tempts Adam and they eat of the fruit and sin enters the world. It came in through a serpent. So there's some interesting symbolism there of serpent and sin that Jesus is referencing. But here's what's more important. Not just the symbolism of the serpent, but the source of the salvation. I love this. I want you to get this. The object that brought life to the afflicted Israelites was fashioned in the form of the thing that brought death. And it was lifted up. And when they looked at it, they were saved. And Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the third myth that Jesus is going to destroy here. That God is out to get bad people. That God is out to get bad people. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin, he's referring to Jesus, to become sin, what he's saying is that Jesus took on the form of the very thing that was bringing death. Just like the bronze serpent was in the form of the thing bringing death, so Jesus took on the sin of the world and was lifted up so that everybody who looks to Jesus, who has the venom of sin in their heart and in their life, when we look to Jesus, we will be saved. And what I love is that the moment Moses asks the question, God, what do I do? God has the answer. 
God was not relishing in the judgment of the Israelites. God never relishes in judgment. Now, we got to be careful here because there are people standing on stages like this who say, look, judgment's a thing of the past. God's not going to judge anybody. That's, 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 that's tradition. That's, you know, it's a new day. Everybody's good. We all get in. That's not what he's saying. There is judgment, but there is never judgment without the opportunity for mercy. So as soon as the serpents start biting, God has a plan to save them. As soon as the rain starts coming, the ark is ready to float. As soon as Adam and Eve sin against God, think about this, a perfect world God has created just for them, they sin. He even said, when you do this, you're going to die, but he doesn't kill them, does he? He kills an animal. And he covers them. That's why James says in James 2, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's the reason that God sent his only son into the world that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. God isn't out to get people, bad people. He's out to redeem them. God's preference is always mercy. God's desire is always to extend his grace. The invitation is open. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So here's the last question we're going to grapple with today. How do we move from the place of God's judgment to the place of his mercy? The answer is found in John chapter 1, just two pages over in my Bible from where we've been. John 1, 12 and 13, this is what it says. But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The way we move from judgment to mercy is we look to Jesus. We believe in him. We receive him as our Lord and our Savior. We experience that spiritual rebirth, and we move from that place of God's judgment to his mercy. And guess what? Heaven throws a party. They celebrate. God isn't seeking to judge. He's seeking to save, and he's done it through Jesus. I have a thing that I do with Jonah from time to time. We did it earlier this week. I was driving, and I looked up in the rear view, and I said, Jonah, I really like being your dad. And Jonah said, and I like being your son. (laughs) And that's how he said it. I don't know why. See, I think our understanding of God might need to shift a little bit because too many of us have understood him as a God who's just out to get us who's looking to punish and to judge and we don't realize what scripture is so clear about that God is a good father who wants to look up in the rear view and say I really like being your dad and our worship is so little more than us just saying you know what I really like being your child I like that relationship God I'm so thankful that I get to be your kid that I get to be part of your family. Did you know that Nicodemus experienced that? We don't see it in John chapter 3, but we know in John chapter 7 that Nicodemus is going to stand up to the other Pharisees and say, hold on, you're you're rushing to judge Jesus, but have you even heard what he has to say? Nicodemus had, and he challenges him. And then in John 19, when Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus, along with a man named Joseph of Arimathea, approached the Roman rulers, put their life on the line to say, Can we have the body of Jesus? Can we give it a proper burial? We know that Nicodemus came to believe that Jesus was who 
he said he was. And you can have the same experience today. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.